eating disorders are a subset of anxiety disorders. Goodbye diets and hello sustainable health. I'm Elise, dietitian and nutritionist based in the Silicon Valley. I believe that we all deserve an effortless relationship with food without obsession. After more than a decade of dieting, binging, and everything in between, I want to help you heal and rediscover a healthy relationship with food. If you're a millennial looking for some food therapy, I'm here for you. Come with a glass of wine, we'll debunk wellness culture, hormone health, intuitive eating, and more. It's not about the food, ladies. Let's get to what you're really hungry for. Thank you all for joining us for today's podcast. And I have a really special guest with me and her name is Archna Aragon, who is one of the lovely people that I work with and have the pleasure of sharing clients with. And she is a therapist who has had over 20 years of experience at this point, having worked with all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds, and I'll let her kind of take it away and introduce herself as well. Thank you, Elise. My name is Arshana Aragon. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been working with patients for say close to two decades. Like Elise said, all kinds of settings, all kinds of diagnostic categories. And as Elise also mentioned, she and I have shared many cases together. And there's a really nice alignment between a person's mental health and their overall physical health. And how they eat definitely is a big part of um, thinking and behavior and feeling. So it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And how we met was, I think it was almost a year and a half, maybe two years ago. The conversation I remember most, two came to mind. We both had a love for Esther Perel. She came up in conversation and we hit it off because we started to talk about how lovely she was, her perspective on relationships. And from that conversation, I realized how much we had in common, the way that we kind of work with our patients and our clients, the way that we approach psychology. She and I just really struck a chord. But what were your first impressions or thoughts when we met? Yeah, very similar. We worked together and we we would chat and everything, but I think the turning point, or I love the word you use, pivot, the pivot point (laughs) was when we started talking about our shared interest in basically various aspects of psychological well-being. And Esther Prowl is famous for kind of her cutting edge work on how to view relationships, especially couples. She does a lot of couples work. And it just turned out that I had met Esther at a conference. And I think you you really liked that. So that's how it, we hit it off. But I do think that you and I sort of align in how we approach psychological issues. And we do share that growth-minded mindset. You know, we bring that to our work. We bring that to our personal lives. So we work very similarly, but I think we also try to live our lives based on those values. And that's similar too. So in you, I find someone who's really like-minded and mm-hmm. um, really helped. I think we work together as colleagues, but I also feel like we really do well as friends. Yeah. And, you know, talking about relationships in general, I think at one point we talked about your work with people and their relationship with food and the kind of spectrum of people that you've seen 
I know that you've worked in, I think it was an eating disorder outpatient facility and even our day-to-day patients today, they kind of fall in various categories in their relationship with food. It was actually an inpatient facility, the residential facility for teenagers uh, or one side of the house was teenagers and the other side was for adults. Um, it was a really challenging, but very interesting work the kinds of things, the kind of skills we were teaching them to manage their distress, their body, the body image, the thoughts, the, the family uh, issues, the legacy that their families left for them, all of that went into it. So it was like a, a very integrated approach with health coaching, uh, psychology, uh, medication, all those, all those approaches we used in that facility. And what really stood out to you during your time there? Just how embedded the thoughts are, you know, and just the belief system that's, it's, it's really difficult to, it, it's not short-term work. I'll say that it's really long-term work and setting the expectations is really important and as well as recognizing that there'll be bursts of growth that might be small huge pairs of plateau and then you know steps backwards and the but the overall is to trend in the direction of really helping them change their thinking that more than anything is what guides behavior thinking guides feelings thinking guides behavior so we really had to get in there and help these they were mostly all young ladies, really help these young, young ladies uh, change their, their mindset and their beliefs about food and body, what's healthy, what's not healthy, change, getting them to get out of that black and white thinking, mm-hmm. that really rigid thinking of this is good food, this is bad food, mm-hmm. this is a good day, this is a bad day, and having them think more in terms, more holistically than just these very polarized approaches to food. And I notice this all the time too, with kind of the dichotomous thinking and the black and white. Why do you think it is such a theme in the rhetoric and the narrative of these, these people? A lot of them, unfortunately, well, first of all, eating disorder, eating disorders are a subset of anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. So what's behind it is anxiety. And that's really, we ought to get to the root cause of what's driving it. So anxiety drives people to do a lot of things and there's addictions, there's shopping too much, working too much. And with eating disordered folks, their anxiety turns to food, to their relationship with food, either eating too much or restricting it as a way of managing uh, chaotic things or managing things that are uncertain or unstable in their lives. It's so interesting that you mentioned this because just on the last episode, I talked about the role of anxiety in people's relationship with food. And when I think of anxiety, I think of it as a fear of the future, which is uncontrollable. And then that energy, that anxious energy gets directed into food, whether it's comfort eating or stress eating or manipulating it in whichever way. But it is really interesting how it manifests into food. And I was going to say the family has a huge role in this because at least in the work that I did with the the patients in the residential unit, 
it was amazing when you interview the family that the family also had a culture of um, a certain type of relationship with food, either through focusing a lot on appearance uh, uh, in the family or focused a lot on exercise and diet to the exclusion of other things. And so it kind of, in a way, runs in families. It's not hereditary per se, but more like just nature versus nurture. So it'd be more like the nurture they got, the, the environment that the child grew up in also had a huge influence on their relationship with food. And how the families talked about food in a very polarized way. I hear this all the time. Um, yeah, with families who were more judgmental about food or more restricting. And then in adulthood, then there's kind of this rebellion and this backlash, but also this deep shame or this deep internal judgment that gets kind of instilled in you of, oh, my mom always thought about this with this type of food or this kind of person in that kind of body. So I should only do this and be in a smaller size body. So you're right. I, I see this too. Families bleeding into how you view yourself to this day. Right. And it's subtle. Sometimes it's overt, but many, many times it was subtle. Mm -hmm. It was subtle, like little small messages that the children of the family internalized about their self-worth or what it would take to get attention, or what was valued in the family. Mm -hmm. When I think about this too, there's a there's almost this hyper awareness, hyper awareness of how to be and what to be and what to look like, and there's a lot of internal chatter that goes on with people who have maybe disordered eating patterns. Right, and the the internal dialogue, the the subtle cues, and and then there's hugely overt cues in our society, especially now with social media and the kinds of things that are deemed valuable or attractive. It's, it's kind of a very narrow type of approach to what beauty is. So I think, and by the way, men and women are influenced by this is no longer just applicable to, to women. I think many men do this too, restrict their, their diet, really focused on their appearance and have a dis distorted view of what normal is or what attractive is. And it really, a lot of it goes back to conforming to beauty standards and thin standards. And that really kind of perpetuates this sort of manipulation of food or trying to be perfect with the food. Yeah. And uh, trying to achieve an ideal and which is a very narrow window where normal is a broad broad spectrum of what could be good. And one thing is exposure, you know, in the media, we're exposed to just a very narrow window in magazines, very narrow window when actually, when you look at society, there's all kinds of sizes and shapes and colors. And so it's just lack of exposure. What we see is what we covet. You know, and sometimes these are impossible standards that only 1% of the population can have and making everybody else feel terrible. And so when you encounter a client or a patient that's kind of grappling with these sorts of thoughts and issues, how do you approach? There's just certain ways that I can kind of tell if there's a, if this issue is happening. So I'll ask about it as part of my assessment mm -hmm. and 
And then we kind of talk about, we go right into their coping skills and what's effective, what isn't. Uh, and, and then I build on what they've already got. So everybody comes in with strengths. So I sort of build on what they already have. We're not starting with a clean slate, but most of the time patients will come in and they have things that do work. So we'll build on that. And I never say that their techniques or that their skills are bad because that would feed right into, into that. So instead we kind of work with what we have. And then I just offer things that they could add to their toolkit so that instead of having a little teeny tiny toolkit of just one or two things that they go to like restrictive eating or over-exercising or binging and purging, we'll expand that to, okay, you've got that. You always have that. And then what else could we add? So it's kind of like taking their little tiny toolkit and making it a bigger toolkit. Oh, that is so interesting. The way that you talk about it, the, the kind of manipulation of food is just one tool in the toolbox and you're there to help them see that there's, there's other tools that you can use. Yeah, don't take anything away from them because my job is not to go and change things for them it's, it's almost impossible to, to do that. And it's up to them. It's not up to me. So I'm not going to force anyone to do anything, mm. but I'll just point things out or I'll notice things. I'll say, you, you use these words. What did you mean by that? So we'll just explore. And one of the biggest things that I try to do is reframe what they're saying. Like, is there another way for us to look at this besides this very narrow, rigid way so it's a, a lot of is, is addressing the black and white thinking the right or wrong the, the very rigid mindset that is fueled by anxiety usually if you have anxiety you have depression too they go hand in hand and I've only come to realize this after quite a bit of time working with patients like this, where I can point to the root of it, which is not the binging or the obsessive food thoughts. It's, it is, it goes back to some of the anxiety and there is a root um, outside of that. And so finally, you know, I'm starting to realize that connection and yeah. as much as you're developing tools with them, I'm trying to also diversify their tools as well to deal with the anxiety. So I think we have a lot of overlap in what we end up doing. <laughs> we do because, uh, usually people that end up uh, being referred to health coaching, it's because they just have that one toolkit, that mm -hmm. one method. It's their go-to method. It's easy. It's accessible. So they go to food, it's always around. Mm -hmm. And what I do with that is ask them to think about, well, what else can we do? Or, okay, well, what would this look like? Uh, if you felt like this, what else could you do? What else is available to you? Where are the areas that you feel uh, you're really strong and that you have access to? And where do you feel like the things that we're talking about are not accessible or too difficult to do? So it's really breaking it down into what seems daunting and too big to break it down into its small bite-sized pieces. So I, the other thing I do a lot of is mindfulness. So the biggest thing that I use are DBT skills, dialectical behavioral therapy for this. So dialectical behavioral therapy is sort of a subset of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy but it adds mindfulness. So CBT does not have a mindfulness component and that's a big shortcoming of CBT. So dialectical behavioral therapy 
puts the mindfulness piece in there of slowing yourself down, slowing the mind down, quieting the mind so that you have clarity. You cannot make good decisions when you're anxious. You cannot make good decisions when you're sad. So it's to sort of um, regulate that, to regulate the emotion, tolerate distress, practice mindfulness, and then the decision-making will get better and better and better, whatever the decision is. That at least it'll be an informed decision as opposed to an impulsive decision mm-hmm. or an urge to action type of decision. Right. I think it kind of pulls you in and grounds you instead of kind of using the food as an escape because that's very easy to do. Exactly. So it's putting the mindfulness, in fact, mindfulness is a big part of it. Uh, then it's emotion regulation, you know, so a quiet mind, then you can start to regulate the emotions and it's, you're not having highs and lows. You're more even. Mm-hmm. And we talk about interpersonal effectiveness, which is how do you get along with people? Because that's a large part of what gets the anxiety going is when there's a problem with somebody, a relationship distress or a family problem, family conflict. That's what sets the anxiety on its course. So we talk about how to get along with people in a more effective way so that you're not triggered, you know? And then the last piece of it is distress tolerance, which is when things are really bad, you know, can you, can you kind of withstand, tolerate it enough before you feel compelled to act? Because eating is a compulsion. So you, know, you don't want to act on the compulsions or the urges. And it's just, again, just to kind of, can you sit with it long enough to quiet those urges before acting? Right. And so you really can see that it's, it's most of the time, not necessarily about the food at all. And I've seen this happen over and over again, even yesterday where my client had said, I feel this urge of um, hunger, but also this wave of anxiety and the anxiety is in my chest, but the hunger is in my stomach, but they're all kind of in the same area. So I just eat to kind of get rid of the anxiety, but then I'm so full that I'm uncomfortable, but I would rather feel uncomfortable than sit with the anxiety. And, you know, at the end of the conversation pointed to the fact that maybe I should just sit with the anxiety because right now I'm, I'm compromising and just feeling overly stuffed and physically in a tough spot with my stomach. So why not just sit with the anxiety and not, and kind of parse out what it is in the first place, give it that space and then move on. (laughs) Yeah. And and so when I lead people through that, I would, it's like an endurance game. It's a long endurance game is to, can you endure it for five minutes? And and we start small and small increments of time. Can you endure your distress, which is anxiety for two minutes? Can you sit still for two minutes, then five, and then slowly build. It's like a muscle, you know, you build, you build it. Emotional resilience over time. And for all of you dog moms with dogs that have separation anxiety, that's exactly how to train them. You let them sit alone for a few minutes and then add another minute and add another minute. So they eventually lean into the discomfort. Yeah, it's really similar with teaching children the same that uh, is really helping them see like building that secure attachment 
and some of the stuff that's happening with anxiety with the eating disorder behavior is based on attachment of people feeling insecure and not attaching you know so then the food is like you're you're feeding yourself some comfort you know you're attaching to the food to an object wow i've never thought of it like that but that makes so much sense well this was really insightful And I want to actually take a step back and I want to get to know you and how you got on this path of being a therapist, because I'm sure people are curious. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Now that I'm here, I can't imagine doing anything else. Also, I have no skill in any other area out of this. So this is it for me. And how did I get interested? I, I think I've always been drawn to human behavior. I've always been really interested and why people do what they do and their internal motivations and how that's been since probably since college, even before that. So this seemed like a a very natural fit for me. Um, I never did want to do research from day one. I wanted to practice. I love working with patients directly. So for me, it just kind of, it's almost like the river parted and all I could see is psychology. (laughs) And being a clinician, I I really couldn't imagine another career for me. So I have been interested in it from the beginning. What kind of sparks the most joy in you with this work? Oh my gosh. I, it's really brings me a lot of satisfaction to see people accomplish their goals that they come in for. You know, they say they want to work on this. And then I just see myself as sort of guiding the path, uh, facilitating the path. And, and that's about it. But I'm always feel honored when anybody invites me to join them in this journey. And it's painful. It's a struggle. Um, to, it's not, I mean, to me, anyone that comes to therapy or tries to make any change in any way takes a lot of courage and uh, a lot of ability to withstand setbacks and still keep it going. So I get a lot of joy when I see somebody working through this, sticking it out and, and that I can bear witness to that. That's very satisfying. I don't know too many professions that I think yours is like that. Mine's like that, where you can actually see the progress, you know, see people making strides, Uh, And by the way, I've noticed, I meant to tell you this before, that when somebody makes one good decision, then it's easy to make another good decision. It's like stringing together a necklace. And it's the same way with the downward spiral, too, that you make one bad decision. That makes it easier to make another bad decision, another bad one, and another bad one. And so I think you and I both are committed to helping people spiral up, you know, into something that's good for them and make one small decision, then make another one, then another one, and living in the present day to day to day. Because that future thing that you talked about, that's what feeds the anxiety. So we don't want them thinking about a year from now or six months from now. We're like, what are you going to do today? What are you going to do tomorrow? I tell them we're not going to plan out anything past three months. Before they do something, I don't get too committed to them doing something. I'm more committed to understanding. So I spend a lot of time with understanding the problem and accepting it. And the change is the very last bit of it. And it's also the smallest bit of it. 
That is so true, Arshna. You know, I hadn't thought about it like that, but you're right. In the sessions where I might rush to set goals or for them to try something new or change something, it's not as powerful as when I really sit with them and understand where they're coming from and what's happening and what they're going through. Yes, yeah, spend a lot of time on that. And that's why therapy is not like a single episode process. You can't just come to one session or five sessions because I don't know how long it's going to take. I can't guarantee that we're going to get this done in a certain limited amount of space because I have no idea how much it's going to take for that person to understand it first and then accept it and then decide, do they want to do something about it? That takes a really long time. So that's why it's a long process. The joy that I get is in participation in the process, not being so wed to the result, but wed to the process. And you have such a nurturing energy where it really is so comfortable to talk with you. So, you know, I I see the passion that you have for your patients and it really does come through. Thank you very much. I, I, yeah, that just touches me. And I do want to ask you, I wonder, is there a specific subset of patients or clients that you love working with, or are you, do you love working with all people with all sorts of struggles? Yeah, that's a great question. There was a time that I only worked with a specific subset of people, but I have realized that I really like to work with all kinds of people. So I just like to see all kinds of things, hear from all kinds of people. And if it's, if I could treat it, I treat it. If I can, I refer out, but I see adults 18 and up. I get a lot of patients especially this last year and a half or so that are port anxiety and depression. And I would say number three is relationship issues. That's a big one that brings people in and they're depressed or anxious about their relationship. And, uh, and then substance use, I, I would say is fourth, mm-hmm. but hardly anybody comes in saying they've got a substance use issue or an eating issue. They don't come in presenting with that. They come in presenting saying, this terrible thing happened to me at work or this terrible thing happened to me in my relationship. And that's what brings them in as a disruption. And it kind of just shows that you have such an open mind and an open heart. So just the humans fascinate you, whatever sort of thing that presents. Mm -hmm. So if you could step into my shoes, what would you have asked yourself that I haven't yet so far? Ooh. I think you asked some really good questions and um, you actually made me think too. Uh, You know, you made me dig a little deeper. (laughs) Like, why am I doing this? What is my purpose here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You made me think about my process. I think you've really opened for me to do some reflection as, as well. I think whenever I'm with you, I find myself thinking, you know, I think that is the effect you have on me is after I leave you, I'm like, oh, I need to think about that a little bit more. Or yeah, I, I leave feeling um, in a way settled, but also in a way like um, more open-minded too. It's weird. It's interesting. Well, I can say the same about you. I think we have the same effect on each other. <laughs> and so do you mind sharing one last thing, which is if you could leave my audience with one thing, 
And this audience is someone who's craving food freedom. So they want to be free from food obsession and maybe binge eating and disordered eating. What would you say to them? I would say, start with one thing you want to change. I actually have a birthday coming up next week and I'm doing that. I actually started April 1st and I said to myself, I'm going to do one good thing for myself, one beneficial thing. It might be meeting a positive person, might be reading something, it might be spending time uh, with myself, doing something that brings me peace, but one small thing. So what I would leave with somebody who is struggling is it starts with one small thing. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that when you add up the small things, you've got something big. You know, so what one small thing can they do today, starting today, that they feel will put them on the right path? And that's really what self-care is. That's what mindfulness is. Anything that you can do that you feel puts you on the path that you want to be on, that leads you to something good. That was so beautifully said, Archna. Well, I will let you go. But before I do that, where can our listeners find you um, online? So the best way to reach me is you can call me or text me at this phone number. That's my private practice number. And we can have a conversation or a consultation. My phone number is 408-913-3542. Call or text and we can do a consultation, uh, especially if you mentioned that you saw me on uh, Elise Lou's podcast, then I will offer you a free consultation, get 30 minute free consultation. So I'll link that below her phone number. And if you found this conversation valuable and you want to see if Archana and you would be a good fit, feel free to text or call her. She is the most loving and nurturing person. So you're in good hands, but that about wraps up our session and our podcast episode for today. And thank you, Archana, so much for coming on and being part of this podcast. You are the first guest ever to be on this podcast. (laughs) I'm honored. Thank you so much for inviting me. I would love to have more conversation with you about this topic and other topics. I think this is a great idea and a great thing you're offering to your audience. Thank you so much. And I'll see you on Saturday. Um, But for my audience, I'll see you guys next Tuesday. Thank you all for letting me into your ears.